Coffee, Cows, and Crops is produced by the Peace Country Beef and Forage Association and hosted by Extension Coordinator Johanna Murray. On this podcast, we discuss management practices and research results with scientists, ranchers, researchers, and farmers. We strive to share innovative information and farming practices supported by sound science and practical wisdom. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get learning. Thanks for tuning in to Coffee, Cows, and Crops. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Tom Kravitz, the author of Ranching Like a 12-Year-Old, and we'll be talking about his ranching experience, his book, and the benefits of keeping it simple. Uh, but before we get into all the fun stuff, Tom, would you like to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about why you wrote this book in the first place? Okay, yeah, I'm Tom Kravitz from Athabasca, Alberta, and I guess the reason that I, I wrote the book is you know what i i really wanted to point out a few things that i learned over the years that boy i wish i would have known that you know 22 years ago and basically you know it, it's it's just that I, ideology of um, making things simple and easy and once you do that then things become fun and yeah like i said i wish i would have known a lot of these things you know, 20 years ago. And then in terms of the, of the grass management, well, that's something that's a, a real passion of mine. I don't know why it is. It just, it just has become that. And it's my goal to build topsoil. And again, I don't know why it is. It just, it just is. And mm-hmm. I want to really figure it out for, there's a lot of things that we know about with farming, but there's a, not much that we know um, on how to do it with, with ranching. And that's something that, uh, I want to promote, uh, because mm-hmm. I think that's the real way to build topsoil. You know, the bison did it, you know, for, I don't know how, how many years, probably thousands of years, the, the plains people moved the bison around, you know, by, by hunting them and somehow that built topsoil. So I want to get back there. And, uh, and it's exciting for me to, to do that. So I, I just, I wrote the book to share my ideas and take it or leave it. You know, it doesn't actually matter to me anymore, but this is what I do. And maybe we can get more, more people building topsoil through ranching and yeah, less farming. <laughs> I know I can get uh, kicked in the ass for saying that, <laughs> but um, yeah, we're farming, we're always tilling the soil and we're, we're burning up um, carbon from the soil and i'm not saying that we don't need farming not at all i'm not saying that at all i'm just saying that we could be doing a better job with our livestock so that makes sense (laughs) so your book has kind of three sections and um i know grazing management is kind of your your passion but you also covered a lot of your grazing management and the philosophy behind that with sure. Clay Conroy on an episode of Working Cows. So I don't want to cover a lot of the same ground as uh, you did in that one, but I did want to touch on the relationship between kind of the grazing period and the recovery periods, because I thought that was really interesting in how you talked about finding the specific graze and rest period on your operation and kind of your system mm-hmm. for, for finding that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what, that is a difficult thing for a lot of people. And we, we talk a lot about the recovery period, you know, like that's a catchphrase, you need, you know, proper recovery period. 
but we don't talk about the grace mm-hmm. period. And the grace period is just as critical as the recovery period. And when I took uh, holistic management, you know, back in, in 2000, we were mm-hmm. taught how to calculate our um, grace period based on the recovery period. But we started with the recovery period. So, you know, at that time, I was just taking, was taking someone's word for what the recovery period in my area was. And there weren't, actually, there was no one in our area doing uh, management intensive grazing. So to ask somebody what the recovery period is, you know, I was just going by the seat of my pants. You know, so I went through that process and then, you know, it's, it's based on your recovery period and how many paddocks you have and then that you figure out the grace period. And then um, as luck would have it, I was, I was grazing uh, about 250 cow-calf pairs and I was strip grazing because that's, you know, what we were taught to get uh, uh, herd density. You want to strip graze. So that's what, you know, that's what I was doing. And it was um, end of May, beginning of June. And I got to this uh, set of paddocks and there was, um, I think there was three and they were fairly long and narrow. And what I did was I estimated that the, the herd would have five days in that paddock. The interesting thing about this was that the cattle had to come back and they had to walk down an alley to get back to the water, to the solar water. So the first day I gave them a strip that I, you know, I said, okay, that's probably enough for one day. And it was. So they're all in that first strip. The second day I gave them a new strip and they all moved into the new strip and they walked back through the first strip back to water. And then they went back to the second strip. Third day, I did the same thing. And this time, so then they had to walk through the second strip, the first strip to water, Mm -hmm. and then back to the third strip. (laughs) On day four, I gave them another strip. And they all went into into the fourth strip. Then they walked back to water. They had to go through three, two, one, and went back to water. And then when they came back, they stopped in, in that first strip. And I said, hey, what the heck is going on here? Then I realized the grass at that time of year, the grass had grown enough that they were able to regraze that in that first strip. And that's a big no-no. Everybody knows that. That's a big no-no. But we don't really notice it, you know, because they're just little baby plants. So we don't see that they're getting damaged. And the funny thing about this situation was that day five, I gave them the last strip. And they all moved in there because they were used to that. So they all moved in there. And within an hour, they're all back in, in, um, in the first two strips. Mm-hmm. So that's when I realized that animals cannot be in, in one paddock at that time of year more than three days. So, and, and you, can't, you can't say, oh, well, uh, four days will be fine. It's not fine they cannot stay in there the fourth day because they're going to be overgrazing those plants. Those little plants that are trying to grow are going to get damaged. So anyways, uh, a lot of people have trouble uh, getting their head around how critical it is that you cannot violate the grace period. And so when when you find out the grace period is, 
and the animals will tell you that, then you can calculate your recovery period. And again, mm -hmm. by luck, what I had discovered, uh, I think about seven, yeah, seven years ago, roughly, 13 paddocks is the magic number for figuring that out, to figure out what your uh, recovery period is. And I don't know why it works. Uh, and again, it was just, it was, it was by luck. I, I was managing a cell mm -hmm. and there just happened to be 13 paddocks. And so I go and fill up my grazing chart and uh, no big deal. And then it comes around to the second rotation and, hey, this works perfectly. Uh, like on my grazing chart. Um, it wasn't, a, I wasn't out in the field looking at anything. It was on my grazing chart. And I was just, hey, what's going on here? And then I start to investigate this a little more, bit more. And somehow 13 is the right number. Um, mm -hmm. And boy, I wish I would have known that uh, 20 some years ago. Uh, because to find out my, my recovery period at, at the latitude of Athabasca, you know, that first rotation, by trial and error, I came up with 35 days. 13 paddocks, it works up to 36 days. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And so, when it, it, you know, when you get into, into later into August, you know, when, when um, grass really starts to slow down, um, <clears throat> it works too. Um, you know, your recovery period increases, but you're incredible recovery period increases because your graze period increases right uh, I don't explain it as well as I like to and I'm working on that but I hope you get the gist of it that uh, you know as an example was it yeah two seasons ago uh, we had that we had incredibly hot and dry conditions and so we, we started out great great conditions good moisture and so 35 days for recovery period. So we are moving, let's go. And then we just got that, uh, you know, the taps went off, uh, no rain, you know, first of June basically. And then we got all that heat mid June. And I was just like, oh, I thought the grass, it, you know, had stalled right out. And the grass didn't stall out, but it sure slowed down. And when I happened to do that little test, uh, that I talked about, uh, you know, where you're strip grazing and the cattle have to walk back to water. Um, I found that our recovery period was um, five days. Or sorry, not the recovery period, the graze period mm -hmm. was five days because on day six, the cattle were back in that first uh, strip grazing, new grass. So I just adjusted everything, you know, so, okay, well, we can stay in each, each paddock. Um, for five days right so if you uh, you know if you're using 13 paddocks so you, you'll take one paddock out of the equation because the cattle are in that paddock so you'll have you'll have 12 paddocks uh resting so you get your extra days you know uh, uh two times 12 those are your extra days and that's how i i figure out my recovery period i start with the grace period so However, a lot of people think that I'm a, a twit about it, uh, and they don't really believe what, what I'm saying, um, and that's fine. Uh, that's just what I do.
and it has consistently enabled me to stockpile high quality forge, high, high, high quality and um, uh, high volume forge for late fall and winter grazing. Perfect. Because <laughs> uh, that's the only way you can do it. You have to keep the grass vegetative to get that kind of high quality forage. Mm -hmm. You cannot let it get into reproductive phase. And that's how I do it. <laughs> oh, and you know what? If you really want to know more about it, there's this great book called Ranching Like a 12-Year-Old that you can buy on my webpage, simplyranching.ca. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I enjoyed that portion of the book because I, I love math and I love formulas. So, so I got in there and I was like, oh, he's got like all the calculations in here. Awesome. Yeah. I like having that as well. Yeah. And those calculations actually come from yeah. the aid memoir a booklet from uh, holistic management. Mm. And I still use that uh, to this day. Um, I still go back, even though I've, um, uh, you know, I, I've tweaked the way that in that formula, they start with the recovery period. And I'm starting with the graze period. Right. I still use the same formula, just that I start at the wrong, a, a different end. Makes sense. Good. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, to my mind, um, there are two big challenges with managed grazing. So there's that grass management and recovery and all that sort of stuff. And then the other side of it is cattle or livestock management, because you're moving those cows and you're handling those animals a lot more often so they need to you need to know how to do it so can you talk a little bit about your philosophy when it comes to moving your animals through the uh, through the system sure so i'm glad that uh, the way that you you talked about this uh, joanna because you you know you alluded to this as a system and it doesn't work you know if you only can do one thing so the animal mm -hmm. handling is huge i want to be able to move my animals in a controlled fashion where I want, when I want. And it doesn't matter to me uh, if it's 30 degree day, it doesn't matter to me, uh, or it's pouring rain, or I want to be able to move those animals because I want to be able to manage my grass. And I want to make sure that I keep the grass uh, in the sweet spot where it's vegetative so that in the winter I have um, high quality, high, high volume forage. Mm -hmm. So Basically, the stuff that I do comes from um, what I learned from Bud Williams' method of animal handling. And I, I've tweaked it a bit because, you know, I started handling large herds, you know, upwards of 500 in a group regularly. And there's a few different things that I needed to do so that I could do this by myself. Mm -hmm. And when I first started doing it, I did it two bells. I had two bells. I had a come to me bell and I had a follow me bell and I've trained turkeys sheep hogs horses and of course cattle you know to some form of bell or a whistle and it works and the reason that uh, I've gone to a whistle now is because I can pop it in my pocket it's easy and the other thing is anybody can go and move those animals if they have if they have the correct whistle so you know that's to make my life easier uh it's not to make the easier on the livestock it's to make my life easier to really get control of your animals 
you need to train them to slow down when you want them to, to speed up, turn right, turn left, <laughs> stop. And once you're able to do that, you're able to take them anywhere at any time because they don't always follow you, you know, <laughs> particularly with this type of uh, grazing where you're grazing in the sweet spot all the time. Those animals yep. are always on a high plane of nutrition. So they're not hungry, <laughs> you know, so if you call them and, uh, you know, they, okay, they stretch mm-hmm. and they, you know, get up slowly, you know, in a cow-calf pairs while they'll go get their calf. They do that all slowly um, when they're not hungry, when they're full all the time. So they don't, if they don't feel like coming, you know, because it happens even to me, done this freaking hundreds of times, it happens. And it's a little embarrassing, you know, particularly when you have somebody watching you, but uh, it happens. But I just resort back to where I started. And that was training them to do these go right, go left, stop, slow down, and those techniques. I will tell you, um, uh, there's a guy named uh, Steve Cote. Oh, yeah. Have you heard of him? I have, yeah. Okay. Uh, you know what? I, I bought his um, a thumb drive that you, he has his videos in, and his book on it, and fantastic. You know, and, and it's, it's all the same principles. Um, I know he's not a big fan of a couple of things that I do, <laughs> but when I watch what he's doing, I realized we're doing the same thing. I'm just speeding it up. Right. And um, I'm actually going to go back and try uh, a couple of the things that he does that I get the same result as, as he gets. I just do it quicker. And so I want to go and try his techniques uh, a little bit, a uh, couple things, and see if I can get the same result in that same p- amount of mm-hmm. time. It's actually what really bothered him was my uh, idea of how I, I create the herd. Right. And I wrote an article for the magazine On Pasture. I forget how many years ago, maybe six mm. years ago, uh, five, six years ago. And I was really nervous about it because this is not low stress, the way that I do it. And I got a lot of, uh, a lot of right. pushback from people. It, they were just really offend, uh, offended, uh, you know, because this is not a Bud Williams thing. However, I was able to train large herds very short period of time. You know, I'm, I'm talking like in two weeks, I had a, a herd built of 900 plus yearlings that came out of a feedlot. And if you've ever dealt with, you know, a large group, they're not easy to handle. They are not, no. And, you know, I did that in two weeks. I got them so that they were just nice and calm and one person could go and move them. And I did that by myself. Um, so the, the method works uh, the way that I do it. And maybe it's not the best method. Um, so I'm going to go and test Steve's way um, out and see maybe it's a better way. Because, yeah, my way is, is it's high stress. And you need a good horse um, in good shape to do it. And if you're on a quad, you better know how to run that quad because uh, <laughs> we're going 90 miles an hour, you know, sometimes. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, like I said, uh, 
the results are amazing. And the more that I've, the more time that I have spent creating a herd, it just amazes me. Animal behavior just freaking amazes me. Um, you probably read a bit about the the mob, you know, where I had the horses and the and the sheep and the cattle and the hogs all together. Mm-hmm. It just blew my mind that those animals, all those different species, and it was a large group, you know, um, well, relatively large. There was over 500 sheep between ewes and lambs. There was, you know, probably 230 head of cattle in there between finishing steers and bulls, and um, and there was some um, open cows in there. Then, you know, I don't know, about 25 head of horses and about 50 or 60 hogs in there. It was a good-sized mob. And uh, one person being able to move those animals wherever you want to go. And not only that, all those animals, they knew that they were part of that, uh, part of that mob. They knew that. And so uh, they didn't go bugger off the, here and there and everywhere. That, that was their group, and they stayed there. Now, that took me two weeks to do, too, you know, because I, and I did it the same way uh, that I did with just, you know, if it was just cattle. So you're probably about to get into it, but, like, can you talk about the, the method you use to create that herd? <laughs> I'm not sure if I want to on the radio. <laughs> I guess this is not the radio. But <laughs> <sighs> well, you've done such a good job of selling it now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <sighs> Okay, you know what? I call it being being a wolf. Okay, and um, I'm not sure if it comes through in the in the book or not, but I'm a big believer in, in uh, creating energy, and I can come out. I can make myself much bigger if I have high energy. You know, if I feel this high energy, I can come with a wall of energy, and then when I don't want a large energy, I have to drop that energy. And then I just become very small, you know, to, to relative to what, what the animals would see of me. I'm not sure if that makes sense or not, but, but it's kind of picture like, like when I picture that I'm a wolf and I have this high energy inside of me, Yeah, it's like this, this big wall. And I, I feel like the, there's this big wall bearing down on that you know, particular animal or, you know, or if I have to, you know, in, in a jam and I have to get the, this herd through um, a creek or through, you know, over ice or something, I, yeah. I come with that big wall of energy. Yeah. So creating the herd, I think of myself as a wolf. So I want all those animals to know that if they leave the herd, they're going to get picked off by the wolf. Mm-hmm. and that's all it is i just become uh, a predator and yeah i lift my energy up and if there's an animal that takes off out of the herd i go after them with big energy crazy eyes and like 90 miles an hour and it doesn't matter what i'm at yet. even right. if i'm on foot um i will go my lungs may be burning uh, and my legs want to fall off but i keep going because I need to get them turned and get back to the herd. But the big thing about this, it is critical for it to work, is that you have to drop your energy. As soon as, just, like, just before they're back at the herd, 
you have to drop your energy down immediately mm-hmm. and not just a little bit like you know as an example uh, if you know I, I ride a horse a lot because uh, I enjoy that and I, I can maneuver very well and you need a horse that will stop right when you tell it to stop right you can't have a horse that you know um uses you know a woe as a suggestion you know and they'll they'll keep they'll trot you know trot and then finally go to a walk cannot do that uh, mm-hmm. because then you're just making matters worse because yeah. that animal does not they don't get their release from pressure right so it's not just becoming the wolf you need need to be able to become the lamb as well so i'm hoping one day i will be able to get a video of of how i do this although it might be safer if i don't because <laughs> if uh, <laughs> but anyways that's what i do i'm not going to be apologetic about it um i know it probably looks like i'm a crazy man when uh, i'm out doing it but I do it with a purpose and the results that I've gotten <clears throat> amazing to me. Yeah. It, it's one of those, we talked about it a lot when I was in theater, the high status, low status characters, whether you came on stage with your shoulders back and your head up and, you know, like you owned the stage, or whether you came on with your head down and yeah, like yeah. kind of making yourself smaller and you just switch those energies. And what you're talking about is the ability to just, on off switch flip between them you bet which i think is a very important skill when you're working livestock freaking right and you know what it's um it took me i don't know how long it took me but it took me a while to get practiced so like now i could just up or down you know if i'm up i can drop it down just just like that and i'm back into just plodding along on my horse but i find a lot of people are people that i work with they're scared to take it up to where they need to take it up and they're fantastic handlers at the low uh fantastic mm-hmm. but you're always going to have animals that are going to test you a little bit and if you don't jump on it they will test you it's kind of like um when we were when yeah. i was running dogs uh, like stock dogs mm-hmm. i only wanted to t- tell my dog once uh, down just right. one command down i didn't want to have to be down tia down you know five or six times that's mm-hmm. just the way i am and that's the way i am with handling um, livestock i don't want to be having to mess with them all the time yeah so anyways that's why i do do what i do and the, the way that i do it mm-hmm. is the way that i do it <laughs> yeah and the neat thing about it is the more that i've seen well i i I've already said this, the neat things that I've seen once animals are hurt. You know, I grew up thinking that cows buggered off to the far end of the pasture or to, into the bush to have a calf. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. And I thought that was just the way they do. That is not the way they do it. They do that to get away because we're out there giving needles, we're tagging, you know, we're harassing them. So they want to get the hell out of there. When livestock are become accustomed to be a herd, you know, or a mob, they have a lamb right within the herd, and it's it's an amazing thing. Like it's just because it's it was so different to what I was accustomed to. Yeah, and yeah, it's just it's like um, 
you know, I've seen the caribou along the Beaufort Sea, uh, you know, videos of them, and that's how they calve. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't calve, you know, one buggering off and having your calf someplace, you know, that calf is gone, you know, uh, yeah. the calf is dead if, you know, if she went and did that. Yeah, and another neat thing that I saw, um, I've only seen this with cows, was a group of cows uh, buggered off. Like there was between six and eight. And I was like, what the heck? There's, they're all in single file and they're walking to the far end of the pasture. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? And I watched them. They all calved within two hours. Wow. All of them calved within two hours, except for one. There was like a matriarch and I don't know if they were all the young cows or what, but, and it was just, it was bizarre. Well, not bizarre. It was just so exciting to see something like, wow, you know, animals are just when they're given a chance to express their nature. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So it is, is that enough about that? I think that's good. I, <laughs> I wanted to switch gears actually a little bit, jumping off of that, uh, building the herd because, um, we're, I think everywhere sees fluctuations in predators, but the last couple of years we've seen, like this spring, we saw a lot of grizzlies because the weather was so warm that they woke up early and then they were all hungry and it was right at calving time. So there's a lot of discussion about predation. Yeah. And, you know, there's um, a ban on shooting grizzly bears. Mm -hmm. So all, all that together. Yeah, well, and we're starting to see like big wolf prints and stuff right around Fairview and there's the usual cougars and that sort of stuff. So I can see where having something that's built to run in a herd and where they, you know, they calve in the group and they hang out together and there's always somebody, yep. somebody on guard. I can see where that would be really, really useful. You bet. Yeah. And then you put guardian dogs um, together with mm -hmm. that and you have a pretty robust system yeah i'm not going to say that it's a perfect system and guardian dogs um you know you have to go through quite a few guardian dogs to get a good dog mm -hmm. um, i know one one young guy told me uh, many years ago the bloodlines have been so diluted that he says about 10 percent of the dogs Mm -hmm. My experience has been mm, about 20% are turn out to be good dogs. Uh, but you have to go through that. And then, you know, with the grizzlies and the cougars and the wolves, you need some different breeds. Uh, you need the, the hunting dogs, like the Kangles and the um, Anatolians. You need those bigger dogs. And then you have to have your freaking neighbors not shoot your dogs. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah. Do. And it's like, I, I know you laugh about it, but it's, it's a, that's probably the worst, the, the most difficult challenge uh, to having guardian yeah. dogs is neighbors shooting their dogs. And I, I understand their thinking because my thinking is the same way. I don't want strange, strange dogs coming on my place. Yes. Okay. But those, those guardian dogs, unless they're causing trouble, but I've never had a guardian dog. No, I better not say that I had one steel uh, chicken and I have to take care of that situation. But unless that guardian dog is causing trouble, they're just passing through. And the rancher should be happy that they're getting free protection. 
I, th I think I talked about that in the book, that story about the one rancher that I, the next door, you know, they, they calved, uh, like, I think a month and a half earlier than us. And they went that whole season without losing a single calf at calving. And in an area where high predation, uh, you know, they probably lost, I don't know what their numbers are. I know what our numbers are were before I came to the ranch, even before we got the guardian dogs, and there was 12 to 15 cats a year to predation, you know, out of um, a herd of 200. So the neighbor went to zero because of our, because of our dogs. I remember he, he talked to the owner the one day and says, yeah, I don't know why they have those dogs. They just sit on that hill watching my cows. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> They're doing their job. Yeah, but the funny thing was, he never offered to pay us, uh, buy any dog food for us. Because <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, if like in those high predation areas where you need, you know, you need a few dogs, you know, you can't get away with one yeah. dog and you need high powered dogs. They're working hard. They're going through a lot of dog food. So, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. That's cool, though. We have uh, one of our board members actually right now. She runs, uh, I think, I'm not going to remember what breed she runs, but she runs some big fluffy dogs with her cows and her sheep. And she's <laughs> she's very in favor of guardian dogs because they deal with wolves and stuff. And they do everything. Um, yeah. Elk even. They do everything. Like, I think it, like, I can't, I forget, you know, the stories that I put in my book because uh, I don't read it every day. Uh, and I wrote it quite a while ago. Oh, about the golden eagle. Mm, yeah. Did I talk about that? You did talk about that one. Okay, cool. Well, for people who are listening, um, <clears throat> I, I found a calf, a dead calf. What the hell? Because it, it looked, it should have been, it looked to me like it was born perfectly healthy. And it just happened. The, the gal that I was working for, uh, she's amazing at uh, predator verification. She could actually have her own CSI movie or show because it was just amazing what she could do. Anyways, you know, uh, I went up to her and I said, hey, you know, this is looked really odd and I don't know what's going on. And she said, well, check for this blood underneath its head and on its cheek and uh, check the tongue. So I go, tongue is gone, eat note, and there's a big pool of blood underneath the calf's head. And I said, this is what it is. And she said, well, that's a, that's a bird. And I thought, well, maybe a uh, raven, because I have heard of ravens. And like one, one time long, uh, I know, 18 years ago, I did have a raven attack a uh, weak calf, but I didn't see any ravens. And, but I did see bald eagles, but bald eagles are, eat carrion and they eat uh, and they're fish. So, well, two days later, another dead calf. But then I saw a golden eagle. And I just like, oh, Okay. And what happened was um, we had these sheep that were assholes and they wouldn't stay in the, in where they wouldn't stay where they're supposed to and were, were lambing at the time. So we only had one paddock that um, was fenced to hold those sheep. And side note, don't buy a small fox from all over the place because those sheep are so hard to train to behave. Anyways, that's besides the point. 
yeah so and i just like and the dogs are over there but they're not by the cows and it's just like oh my gosh and i'm getting stressed because i didn't know how to deal with this predator so what i did was i moved the sheep over they they hadn't been trained yet uh so the move it took me two days to get the sheep moved over uh you know because they're lambing lambing right then anyways we got over there and we never lost another calf and the one morning uh, I got up right at daybreak and I saw three of the dogs chasing that golden eagle across the pasture. So, you know, I don't know how much damage would have happened with that golden eagle, you know, because really the only thing that I could do was shoot the thing. And, you know, you can't do that. So, yeah, the dogs just did an amazing thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I hear stories about people saying, well, you know, I, oh, someone told me about their, they were losing lambs to ravens. Yeah. And, it's because their dogs didn't know how to deal with birds. And I say, screw that. A good dog will take care of, it doesn't matter what it is. It'll take care of Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And, you know, this is kind of the diluting of the bloodlines. So dogs that aren't good, you know, or just sort of good, they get bred when they should be uh, neutered. (laughs) That's my two cents. Again, uh, a lot of this is, it's all just opinion. And just my thoughts and my observations, it's not, you know, a hard fact or anything. <laughs> okay. Uh, awesome. Well, we ran up on time a lot quicker than I was expecting to with this episode. Tom and I got chatting and uh, time got away from us. So this episode will continue in our next uh, next session here in two weeks. Do tune into that. Uh, or if you're listening to this after the fact, I'm guessing it'll be right next to the queue where we'll chat with Tom about some more of his business strategy and how he hires help and his philosophy that way. So for now, if we've convinced you that Tom's got some interesting ideas and you'd like to go check out his book, that's available on simplyranching.ca. Um, or you can just click on the link in the description here. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Peace Country Beef and Forage Association is a research and extension group based out of Fairview, Alberta. Our mission is to help producers thrive in an agricultural system that is profitable, regenerative, and attractive to future generations. To learn more about what we do and see the results of our research trials or our archive of newsletters and fact sheets, check out our website at peacecountrybeef.ca. Want to get in touch? Have a burning question or a topic suggestion? Send us a message on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Thanks for listening!